as you look at those uh, verses, I guess, and I felt this very much this week, there's no getting around, is there, the fact that Jesus, what he is teaching here, I think is uncomfortably challenging, and I think unnervingly knowing. Look at it, be careful not to practice your righteousness, to live out your faith in front of others, to be seen by them. And the warning that comes in verse 1 has those eternal consequences. Look at, look at there. Uh, if you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. The problem is we know the practice in question is so tempting, isn't it? And therefore it's often very prevalent in our lives. Now, we've just had Christmas, haven't we? And uh, you may be new to Christian things, and you're probably wondering right at the stage, where's, where's lovely little Jesus, you know, meek and mild Jesus at this stage? Look at what he's saying here. Where's the, the, the Jesus, the historic figure of love that we seem to enjoy so much, the Jesus that we feel that we can utilise on our terms, in our way, when it's convenient for us? Where's that Jesus gone? Well, if you're... You amongst us, you join us, as Ash has mentioned. We kind of like paused our series in the Sermon on the Mount, that's Matthew chapter 5 to 7, but we're kind of re-entering it here at the beginning of chapter 6. And it's probably, as I said, the, the most famous sermon that's ever been taught. Jesus is teaching, as we see it, flip back to chapter 5, verse 1, you'll see the context. Jesus is teaching his disciples on a mountainside, a hilltop. Therefore, it's often described as the Sermon on the Mount. I wonder, I was flicking through my mind, I wonder what kind of things we might teach on a hillside, on a mountain top. What kind of things might you discuss? You might point out the beautiful scenery. You may just break into song that the hills are alive. <coughs> Maybe dressed with curtains and so on as well. But you might just talk about the other things, you know, the route that you have taken to the top. Maybe the effect that it's had on your stomach line after a bit of overeating at Christmas. What would Jesus say about your mountaintop kind of conversation? Well, I think he would echo some famous put-downs of Sherlock Holmes. He would say something like, trivial, my dear Watson. And what Jesus has been teaching here is so far from the trivial. He begins his sermon, just flip back to chapter 5, we're going to have a kind of cursory glance through it if we can. Uh, he begins that so famous sermon outlining what I love to describe as, they are the beautiful attitudes, the beatitudes, as it's written there, uh, of the Christian. He begins showing that the Christian is the one who is, as Ash pointed out, the poor in spirit, verse 3. The one who thinks very lowly of themselves and in a very lofty way about God. What follows are a list of attitudes of our hearts that should be present in the one who is filled with the righteousness of God. As they trusted Jesus Christ, his life, death and resurrection, that the righteousness that they've hungered for, as we see in verse 6, they've been filled with it by God. God makes them right with him such that they will, verse 8, see God and inherit an eternal kingdom of heaven, verse 10, with God. The Christian is filled with the righteousness of God. They're secure in heaven from the moment they put their trust in Jesus Christ. And his righteousness is counted as ours at that point, imputed to us, Romans tells us. 
But the question, I guess, that many of us will face is that, does that therefore, if we are Christians, give us kind of an open license to do as we wish? To follow our heart's desires in every way that we see fit? No. And that's what Jesus has been pointing out as we go through this sermon. Think back to that phrase, the salty and lighty of chapter 5, verse 13 to 16. No, we're to be salt and light. We're to be distinctive, a distinctive preservative in a dark and decaying world. The reality we know, if we're a Christian here today, is we're not perfect. Everyone around us knows that. We know that. But the calling that Jesus is placing upon his listeners here, the Christians, is is a very high and demanding calling, isn't it? In terms of righteous heart attitudes, Christians, he says, look at verse 20 of chapter 5, are even to surpass the kind of the pedant Pharisee law keepers. After those verses, Jesus then points out, and we've gone through them week by week, very closely, Six illustrations, he points out, how that is applied in life. And what we looked at, we've looked at things like anger, of lust, of faithfulness, of promise keeping, of justice and of love. And each illustration, as he gets to the end of chapter 5, what is he, Jesus doing? He's raising the bar for Christians. Old Testament legalism, which is the illustrations he uses again and again, following the rules to the letter is to be replaced with a spirit-inspired, heart-changing life. Any onlooker, as they see a Christian living, walking around, working, workplace, anywhere where it is, any onlooker should see a change and should see a Christian in all areas of life. And they won't see perfection. But Jesus' point is that they should see more More love, more justice, more trustworthiness, more faithfulness, more purity, more, more, more. And hence why Jesus finishes chapter 5. Just have a look down there. I mean, it's an extraordinary end, isn't it? Verse 48, it's the highest of all bars. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now, the word perfect here, I explained to you just at the beginning of December, it, it, it really, it's used elsewhere as the term holy, or set apart, or, or mature, and fully grown. Yes, we're, we're to be aspiring to be like our Heavenly Father. We're to hunger and thirst for righteousness, right attitudes before God. But perfection this side of heaven is not achievable. We trust in the one, though, who did achieve that perfection. <coughs> whose perfection can be counted as ours through faith in him, putting our life and our deaths in his hands. And so Jesus finishes chapter 5 with the encouragement really to do more in response to his infinite love. And the challenge so far has been centred around the heart attitudes Sometimes described, uh, you might describe it as, as a kind of a moral righteousness, which Jesus is, bringing, is expecting of his followers. Now the shift when we get to chapter 6 is it, it's very similar. Lots of patterns follow in the way that Jesus kind of presents his arguments. But rather, he's not looking for, asking for more moral righteousness. Now the shift is toward the practice of our faith. 
what scientists are called our religious righteousness. There's an old word that describes that. You may have heard it. It's the word piety. It's the acts of your faith. How it is worked out day by day. And it's important to recognise that Jesus doesn't see a divide between the two. There is not a brick wall between chapter 5 and chapter 6 and he says, oh, pick one or the other. The righteousness, the faithful life that he calls for in Christians is both in heart attitude and acts of service, living it out. We mustn't prioritise one over the other. Well, let me give you an example. You might, you might look at someone who you know, prays in church and they, they're so eloquent and you long to be like that. They seem to have all the right words to say and you kind of think, oh, they're, they're just in the perfect sort of situation. But if they have a serious problem with anger or lust or being faithful, well, Jesus' saying questions need to be asked here. And flip it around the other way. Likewise, questions must be asked of a Christian who's also morally upright, you know, with wonderful attitude to the heart, but seems to lack any desire to live that out. Christian righteousness or goodness must be more in both spheres, our acts and our hearts, and only, of course, by the grace of God. I don't know, I was trying to recall back, do you remember when you first became a Christian? Do you remember how your heart was melted by God and his spirit would come into you and, and you were just so alive. You, you just wanted to serve and honour Jesus in every way that you possibly could. After all, you recognise he's rescued you. He's saved you to be with him in heaven for, forever. And therefore, at that moment, living authentically, passionately for Jesus, both in, both in the areas of our heart attitude and in our acts of service, it, it just became so natural, didn't they? And if that is true for you today... I am so thrilled. Please continue in that life and in that way. Don't stop. The problem comes though, and this may be you, is that you begin to love it. We begin to love the practice of our faith and what it brings. And that is what Jesus is pointing here to and saying, there's a great danger here. Let me explain with a, with a question and then, if you like, a little mini confession from me. The question is, do you remember the day when you first began to live out your faith for the praise of others? When you realised you enjoyed it? I grew up in a family of Christians, and I had many opportunities to share my faith and to teach I remember helping out with a children's group on a holiday camp. I was about 13 or 14 at the time, and I remember vividly coming home one evening, having been teaching up front, hundreds of children there, lots of praise from people saying, oh, you're really gifted. You did a great job there. And I remember the praise of people gripped me. And I remember walking home from that, and I remember feeling both thrilled and yet at the same time stomach-wrenchingly awful. <coughs> and I think that is why Jesus begins this chapter, chapter 6, with this uncomfortably challenging, and it is unnervingly knowing 
warning. Do you see how it applies? See, you may have a full, veritable CV of righteous deeds. You can do it all. Whether it's in your giving, in your, in your life, or whatever it may be. You're so useful to the church. And people might even say to you, you're such a blessing to us. You. You're wonderful. But Jesus warns here, <coughs> if you start looking sideways for praise, be careful. Because you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. This warning, as uh, he spells out in verse 2, is a warning against hypocrisy. Let me show you how. Uh, two things briefly. Uh, they're on your outline there that we learn about hypocrisy from Jesus' teaching here. We're going to see the problem and hopefully the solution. It's a simple outline, but I hope we can follow it. That's, that's where we're heading. Firstly, then, the problem. Let's look at verse 1 2 in a bit more detail. And let's be clear, very honest with ourselves, that hypocrisy was obviously a problem then. It is a problem today, and I guess always will be. I think we can all acknowledge that, can't we? In nearly every study I could find on the subject of reasons that people kind of want to push the Christian faith aside, hypocrisy always is there. It's always there in the top five. It's often phrased like this. People will say something like, if Christianity is true, why are there so many hypocrites in the church? Have you heard your friends say things like that? In other words, if Christianity is, is supposed to elicit some form of change in the person, in the Christian, that their life is meant to show and demonstrate some of these beautiful attitudes that we've seen in chapter 5 and so much more, then why are the some who profess to believe in Jesus such bad examples? So many people say that, don't they? And hypocrisy, I don't, let's just think of the definition, it is assuming a false appearance. Assuming a false appearance. Appearance of godliness for us, obviously. Supposedly do it all for God, yet... We're enjoying the praise of others. Interesting, I found out this week that the word hypocrisy actually comes from the theatre. It's, it's to assume, kind of, uh, to place on yourself the appearance of someone else. Now, of course, in the theatre, that's totally acceptable, isn't it? The actor plays the part. You expect that of them. But pretense or sham in life, the pretender who professes to have a faith and yet lives in a way that is no more righteous than anyone else. The one who doesn't practice what they preach, that is so off-putting, isn't it? It would be like a parent, I was thinking of an illustration of this, but you know, let's say I've got you know, a teenage son, and I, there I was with you know, 10 pints of beer, I've drunk eight, I've got two left, I'm smoking 60 cigarettes, I'm going, man, I'll be drinking, it's terrible. Uh, smoking, you really don't want to do that. What an awful example. I'm not practicing what I'm preaching. What a hypocrite I would be. Why should anyone listen to someone like that? Verse 1, you see, therefore, is exposing the problem, and it comes in the form of the warning. That is what's going on. Be careful to not practice your righteousness, your faith, in front of others, to be seen by them. That is to get their praise. Now, the astute amongst you will go, well, isn't Jesus kind of contradicting himself here? Think back to chapter 5, verse 16. Do you remember that salt and light passage? 
What does Jesus say? Look at verse 16 of chapter 5. There he says, hey Christians, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds. So in chapter 5 he, he, he commends that, that our deeds be seen by others. In chapter 6 now, what's he doing? He's saying, be careful not to. He warns against it. What's going on there? Now, the clue to understanding this, I think, is within the context. Critically, Jesus is speaking against two things that we find very difficult. Against two sins, if you like, in, in our lives. Two struggles. In chapter 5, the issue is, is just, in a sense, it's cowardice. He's not wanting to kind of make, make God known. In chapter 6, the issue is vanity. John Stott, a great scholar and preacher, summarised Jesus' teaching here in this way. He says, show when tempted to hide, and hide when tempted to show. See, our good works must be public so that our light shines. That is, our religious devotions must be secret, and also our religious devotions must be secret lest we boast about them. You see what Stott's saying there? When you're tempted to, to show off, you hide <laughs> The glory must go to God. You see, the glory of God is the end result of both of these things. You see that in chapter 5, verse 16. The light of our good works is to be seen so that they may glory, glorify God. They might see God. In chapter 6, we're to keep the devotional acts of our faith secret so that the glory may go to God. Not us, nor anyone else. Now, Jesus spells out this problem in more detail in verse 2. Look at it, if you can, with me. So when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets to be honoured by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. Now, we know that as we've gone through the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus has very often been challenging our motivations, hasn't he? This uh, practical giving of alms, as it used to be called, the giving to the needy here, comes now into his crosshairs. And to us, as you read that verse, it does look slightly ridiculous, doesn't it? Can you imagine it? The trumpets sounding as people gave charitably. It sounds so crass and ostentatious. It's not British at all, is it? But the sounding of trumpets was apparently commonplace. Now, it's not clear that whether, you know, as people went to the synagogue with their kind of little wallets or bags of coins, that literally people lined the streets blowing trumpets saying, look at this great giver, celebrating their generosity. Not many people think that that was the case. But we know historically that trumpets were sounded when a need was known. The synagogue would blare out trumpets to show and to, 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 all the community would know there is a special need. And people would respond. They would walk to the synagogue with the trumpets sounding to be able to give to the needy. But can you imagine that walk to the synagogue? Trumpets are sounding. There you are. You have the means. Can you imagine the swagger as you walk down the street? Everyone knows you're heading synagogue way. You're, you're the one who's going, I'll sort the situation out, everybody. I've got the money. I'm the generous one. I'll sort it out. Thank you very much. Maybe even some literally did blow the trumpet as they walked to announce their generosity. We're not sure. And to be honest, it just doesn't matter 
Jesus either is caricaturing a situation or is literally describing a situation. In either case, he is rebuking that childish tendency to look for the praise of those around us. The great preacher, local preacher Spurgeon said this, to stand with a penny in one hand and a trumpet in the other is a posture of hypocrisy. Do you see the problem that Jesus is addressing? Do you smell the stench of hypocrisy? Does the same danger exist today, particularly with giving to the church and the needy? I looked at the bronze plaques earlier on. These aren't bad, actually, at the back of church. There are four. Often you see in churches, though, bronze plaques for another reason. To celebrate the benefactors of that church, who helped establish that church. Sometimes if you go down to local church buildings, Baptists particularly, the foundation stones, there are four at the front. They usually have emblazoned on them the names of the people who gave their money in order to make that building uh, able to be built. Why would so many charities, and even Christian charities, even Christian churches, why would so many fold financially if they didn't provide for their most generous givers Things like special time with the minister. Or just an odd public banquet or celebratory dinner for their giving. I lead a trust in a... It didn't happen, but it was very close. Uh, I was saying, a guy offered to give some money. And it was very interesting. He said, where should we go for dinner? And I said for a sandwich and he found that very difficult he was expecting a very very lovely lunch in a big restaurant and I said I'll buy you a sandwich and nothing more he found it hard now please don't hear me as being overly critical when someone gives large sums they need to be good stewards of the money that God has bestowed on them They need to ask sensible questions, and that is completely appropriate. But giving so that others may see and know, so that you would have a bronze plaque, so that you could go to the celebratory dinner, so that you could have the special time with. Well, we need to be careful, don't we? Giving so that others may see and know. Jesus warns his hypocrisy. Why? Because if that is you, I want you to realise today what Jesus is saying. You're not giving at all. All you've done is bought. You've bought the recognition of someone else. (coughs) I think we probably acknowledge, feel, understand the problem of hypocrisy. What about the solution? Let's go to verse uh, 3 and 4. Again, Jesus is just staying with his illustration of giving to the needy. Look at verse 3. Let's refresh our minds there, shall we? But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret. Then your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. Now, let's just understand here. The right hand is the, normally, as understood culturally, is the active hand. It's the one that the majority of people will be right-handed. That's what they would do things with. 
And Jesus is assuming that here, that if, if anyone's giving money, they're going to give it with the right hand. Okay? But then Jesus adds, doesn't he, that our left hand must not be watching what our right hand does. And it's kind of, it's kind of like impossible, really, unless you kind of contort yourself. So what's he saying? I think what Jesus is introducing here is a third option. Already we understand that you can either give for the glory of God alone, or you can give so that you're giving so that for the praise of others. That's the second option. Are we clear? But there's a third, I think. You give for seeking the praise of men, or you give for the glory of God alone, or, and I think this will expose the subtlety of our sin. It certainly unpicked me this week. The third option is, yes, you give privately. The, the left hand doesn't know what the right hand is doing and so on. But then you just give yourself a little pat on the back. You better kind of, hey, I gave privately. You know, no, no one knew. I, it was an anonymous gift. But oh, I'm pretty good, aren't I? I? I'm certainly a little bit better. You know how it goes, the narrative of your mind. See, this right and left hand illustration is to discourage that self-righteousness that creeps up on us so easily. The spirit of kind of self-congratulation, the pat on the back. Oh, I'm so generous. Do you see how subtle this is? And perhaps even how perverse it is. It is possible, trust me. It is possible to turn what is literally an act of mercy into an act of vanity and and even a seeking of self-righteousness through it. One scholar put it like this, he said, altruism has been displaced by a distorted egotism. And put simply, and probably a bit more practically, I think what we need to do is we need to do the deed, whether it's giving or any public ministry, and then we need to very quickly forget the deed. Because the glory is to be for God alone. So with giving, we're to give and quickly move on. Looking for another way to give glory to God. Ken Hughes, who's written a wonderful commentary on this, put it this way. He said, the service, yes, is to be horizontal. We're to serve others. We're to love others. Whether it's giving generously. We're to serve. The service is horizontal. But it is for the vertical. Our giving is to be secret, to protect us from our sinful vanity and hypocrisy. Secret from others, yes, that was the first point, but also secret from ourselves in that sense. The left hand and the right hand, they're not, they're not to know what they're doing. Our giving is to be marked, yes, by self-sacrifice, and we can look in many places throughout the Bible for that, but also with a sense of self-forgetfulness as well, which will keep us from self-congratulation, which is hypocrisy. Because the glory is to go to God alone. There's a few things I wanted to, as we go through this, uh, this week, as I've been going through this this, this week, uh, I, just a few things I wanted to be quite thankful for. Let me just note a couple if I can. I'm very thankful that this church, Christ and Joseph, we don't have a collection. Because I think that's a minefield for this. Oh, look at me. Secondly, I want to be thankful that giving of this church is anonymous. And very private. I want you to, I think, be thankful to God for that protection on our hearts. I do not know anything of what anyone gives. And nor do you. 
And I think for both of those ways, that is a really helpful thing for which we should be very thankful. I'm also very thankful that sometimes those more needy amongst us receive anonymous gifts. And I am thrilled that that goes on. And I would like to encourage you to do more of that. But we must recognise that the left hand sees what the right hand is doing. So I guess this is the most pertinent application here. We need to be careful that we are very quickly self-forgetful. We have no place to blow our trumpets here. Imagine, I was trying to picture one of us sort of, I'm going to give this, and off we go. It would be awful. And we must be very thankful for that. But we must be very careful to avoid hypocrisy and not let our left hand see what the right is doing. Let me finish with it on this little section of a great quote from the great reformer John Calvin on the subject. He simply says, We ought to be satisfied with having God for our only witness. That should be good enough. God sees. And that's enough. If we're satisfied in that way, if you only look for the glory of God, what does that look like for you personally? What would it change in, in the way that you give, the amount you give? Perhaps in, in other areas of your life and, and your faith worked out. Conversations about Jesus, maybe as well. Are you assuming a, a false appearance of godliness and of goodness and of generosity? Or are you the pretender, the hypocrite? Do you practice what you preach? Not just in giving. Think where this applies most to you. But please be careful. Remember the warning from verse 1. So be self-forgetful and give God the glory. Why? Well, let's just turn to that last verse very, very quickly as we close. Then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Does that sound strange? That, that we're encouraged here by Jesus to give for a reward? It sounds slightly mercenary, doesn't it? It sounds like you only give to get something back, that that's your sole motivation. It may even encourage you to think that your faith is somehow of your making. <coughs> we eterne, we uh, earn that eternal reward? That's maybe what you're thinking. That's not what Jesus is thinking here at all. Because the reward that God gives here is not the reward of present wealth or health, as some might teach, of medals and of prestige. God gives something of himself as a reward. One of the, I think, one of the most fascinating, one of the greatest essays that I think I've ever read is that of C.S. Lewis. Uh, it's called The Weight of Glory. If you haven't got it, please do get it. It is quite outstanding. Let me read, as he commented on this verse, uh, particularly, he says this. We must not be troubled by unbelievers when they say that this promise of reward makes the Christian life a mercenary affair. There are different kinds of reward. There is the reward which has no natural connection with the things you do to earn it and is quite foreign to the desires that ought to accompany those things. And he gives an example. Money is not the natural reward of love. That is why we call a man mercenary if he marries a woman for the sake of her money. But marriage, he says, is the proper reward for a real lover. And he is not mercenary for desiring it. The proper rewards are not simply tacked on to the activity for which they're given, 
but are at the activity itself in consummation. Let me summarize that. I think he's saying that if we live at our, our faith to be seen, yes, we'll receive praise from those around us, and it will be for a moment. But if we live out our, our faith for the glory of God, we will receive its natural reward. Now, in terms of giving, that is, we will see the need relieved, whether that's in ministry terms or giving to the needy outside. But also you will know that secret joy of God's pleasure. A pleasure that will go on for eternity because he has ultimately rewarded us with the righteousness of his son. So as Jesus said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. But be warned, my friends, how you give. Be careful that you live out your faith for the glory of God alone. Do not be hypocrites. Live for the praise and the glory of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, these verses, uh, though short, are wonderfully practical. And I guess all of us will have felt the weight of them. Please help us uh, be honest, to spend time reflecting on how that we ought to properly apply these words and live in response to your word. And please, by your Spirit, do a work in all of us that we might honour you in a way that is so pleasing that you would take great delight that you... A smile will be across your face as you see lives transformed. We pray this for your honour and glory. Amen.